Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There are two other hosts that are joining me today. Daniel Sung. Hey, guys. What's up? And Hans. Howdy, howdy. Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you'd like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is $0.16 a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. We have over 70 extra Patreon episodes, which is over 80 extra hours of listening pleasure. To see the full list of Patreon episodes, go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the Patreon episodes tab. There, you will see an entire list of Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published. Also, today we have added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is over the Bermuda Triangle. So you get access to that episode, as well as all of the others, for just $5. Now, another way to support the show is through our merchandise. If you want a shirt or a hat, you can head over to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the Shop button. Now, as of right now, we are sold out of merchandise, but on October 7th is when we restock. So make sure you head over there on October 7th and grab you a shirt or a hat. Now, if you can't afford a shirt or a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressured to leave one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are, to enjoy the show. Also, one last thing. If any of you would like to reach out to us, then you can shoot us a message on Instagram, Facebook, Discord, or you can go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the contact button there. You will find our email addresses, and you can send us an email. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over D.B. Cooper. So how this episode will go today is that we'll talk about the story of D.B. Cooper, the investigation into him, strange facts and findings, theories, and of course, wrap it all up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. In 1971, a mysterious man carrying a briefcase with a bomb inside boarded a flight to Seattle, Washington. Shortly after takeoff, he quietly hijacked the plane and made a list of demands. A few hours later, after his demands were met, he put on a parachute and jumped out of the plane, never to be seen again. This launched a worldwide manhunt that lasted over 45 years and ended up turning into one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in FBI history. Even after all those years, strange theories and rumors still surround this individual, 
Was he actually a rogue CIA agent? Or just a disgruntled employee? Or maybe he never even really existed at all and it was all fabricated. This is the story of D.B. Cooper. Now before we dive into those theories, just like every week, let's start at the beginning of the story so we can fully understand it. So this entire mystery begins on November 24th of 1971, the day before Thanksgiving. On this day, at the Portland International Airport in Oregon, an individual approached the Northwest Airlines ticket counter. This person appeared to be a middle-aged man in his mid-40s, around six feet tall, and was wearing a black suit with a white undershirt and a narrow black tie. The man approached the ticket counter and stated that he would like to purchase a one-way ticket on Northwest Airlines Flight 305 from Portland to Seattle, Washington. Just a side note real quick. This flight was a short one. It was only a 30-minute flight from Portland to Seattle. Just some extra information to keep in the back of your mind as we move forward. So the ticket counter asked for his name to complete his transaction, and he told them that it was Dan Cooper. He then paid for the ticket in cash, which was a total of $18.52. He got his ticket and headed towards the waiting area for the flight. Now, just another little knowledge nugget real quick. At the time this occurred, proof of identity was not required by airlines to purchase a flight ticket. So he didn't have to show an ID or anything. He just told him his name was Dan Cooper. Just a little knowledge nugget for you. All right, so shortly after that, Cooper boarded the Boeing 727 Flight 305 to Seattle and sat in the seat, which was located in the back of the plane. In total, there were 36 passengers on board, three flight attendants, and three pilots. Now, Northwest Airlines had a policy at the time that while passengers were sitting on the plane, waiting on it to take off, that the flight attendants would serve them beverages. So, one of the flight attendants started from the front of the plane asking passengers what drinks they would like, while another flight attendant started from the back of the plane. When one of them got to Cooper, he politely asked for a bourbon and soda, in which he was given. Only a few moments later, at approximately 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the plane departed from the Portland airport. Only 10 minutes later, at approximately 3 p.m., after the plane was in the air, Cooper leaned back in his seat, turned around, and looked at the flight attendant who was sitting in her jump seat directly behind him. He then handed her a note. Initially, that flight attendant thought that maybe, you know, Cooper was flirting with her and it was his phone number or something, so she kind of tucked the note away in her purse. However, after seeing her tuck the note away without reading it, Cooper leaned towards her and whispered, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. She opened the note that said, Miss, I have a bomb here and I would like you to sit by me. The flight attendant dropped the note in shock, then stood up and quickly sat next to Cooper. After she sat down, she quietly asked the passenger to see the bomb to make sure that he was, you know, telling the truth. Cooper lifted up a briefcase from his side, sat it on his lap, turned it towards the flight attendant sitting next to him, and opened it up. 
inside were eight red cylinders, four on top of four, attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. Cooper then closed the briefcase and placed it on the seat to the right of him. He then told the flight attendant that he had a list of demands and to write them down. His demands were 200000 in American currency, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. A little side note here, 200000 in 1971 is equivalent to around $1.3 million this year. Thanks a lot, inflation. Anyway, back to the story. So as the flight attendant was writing these demands down, the other flight attendant was making her way to the back of the plane and noticed this. She thought it was quite odd that the other flight attendant was sitting next to a passenger. As she walked by, the flight attendant who was sitting next to Cooper looked up at her and motioned to her to pick up a piece of paper that was on the ground, which was the note that was given to her by Cooper that she dropped after reading. The other flight attendant picked up the note, read it, and immediately reached for the phone beside her. She told the pilots what was happening, that they were being hijacked and it was not a joke. She hung up the phone and approached the flight attendant and passenger. The one attendant who was sitting next to the passenger stood up and took the demands to the pilot in the cockpit. The captain of the flight got the demands and contacted the Seattle-Tacoma Air Traffic Control, which informed local and federal authorities of what was going on. The attendant then left the cockpit and went back to where Cooper was sitting. When she arrived back there, she noticed that he was wearing dark sunglasses now. Now, around this time, Northwest Airlines President Donald Nerope got a call about what was happening. He ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijacker's demand and told the FBI and other federal authorities that he was authorizing payment of the ransom. The FBI then started assembling the money from several Seattle-area banks. The money was going to be 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most of them with serial numbers beginning with the letter L, as in Lima, and most from the 1963A, as an Alpha, or 1969 series. After the FBI gathered the ransom money up, they decided to make microfilm photographs of all the bills so that they could track them. While that was being done, the information was relayed to the pilots that the ransom money was being gathered, but it would take a while. The flight circled the airport for approximately two hours to allow the FBI sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to mobilize emergency personnel on the runway. You think at this time that the other 35 passengers would be like, why haven't we landed? It's been two hours. This flight was only supposed to be like 30 minutes. Well, those passengers weren't complaining because they didn't have a clue what was going on. The co-pilot actually told the passengers that they had a minor mechanical problem and that they needed to burn some fuel which they all didn't think twice about, because, you know, who's going to doubt the pilot? So as the plane was waiting for those few hours, one of the flight attendants sat next to Cooper, while the other talked on the phone next to them, relaying messages from the captain to Cooper to assure that his demands were being met. Now, just another little knowledge nugget here, but the flight attendants described Cooper as being calm, polite, and very well-spoken. 
He wasn't nervous at all and was never cruel or nasty to them. Also, while he was waiting, he did order a second bourbon and soda. And uh, he was nice enough to pay his drink tab. That is nice. Yeah, and he was also chain smoking, too. Back then, you could smoke on planes, so he's just smoking one cigarette after another. What a f***ing legend. All right, let's continue. All right. So the FBI gathered the money, made copies of it, and initially got military-issued parachutes from McCord Air Force Base personnel. However, Cooper relayed a message back that he didn't want those military parachutes, and instead demanded civilian parachutes with manually operating ripcords. The FBI agreed, and the Seattle police were able to obtain them from a local skydiving school. I understand that. What a smart man. You have to explain that to us. What? Well, yeah, explain that to us real quick. So, McCord does have free fallers, which means uh, people that in the military that can like jump out at more than a thousand feet. But when it says the rip cord, which is what allows the parachute to release, um, the military ones that they were probably given were meant for about twelve hundred feet, and that's basically uh, you don't pull it yourself; you have your parachute line hooked up to a cord and when you jump out that line pulls your parachute for you so it makes sense just a little knowledge nugget there for you all right well thank you you're welcome shortly after that at 5:24 p.m cooper was informed that his demands had been met only 15 minutes later the aircraft landed at the seattle tacoma airport After landing, Cooper instructed the captain to park the airplane in an isolated, brightly lit section. Another thing he told the captain to do was to close all window shades in the cabin. This was in order to deter any snipers from shooting Cooper. So as the plane sat there waiting, Northwest Airlines operations manager started walking towards the aircraft in just his regular street clothes but he was also carrying a cash-filled knapsack and the parachutes. Cooper ordered the captain to lower the plane staircase onto the runway, which he did. Cooper then had one of the flight attendants go out and retrieve the cash and parachutes. Once the delivery was completed, Cooper allowed all passengers and two flight attendants to leave the plane. The only individuals left were Cooper, the captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, and one flight attendant, so five people in total. Once everyone except Cooper and the four crew members were off the plane, the fuel truck arrived and began refueling the airplane. During this refueling, Cooper spoke to the crew members. He told them that he had a flight plan, that they were going to fly southeast toward Mexico City at a minimum airspeed without stalling the aircraft which was approximately 115 miles an hour at a maximum altitude of 10,000 feet. Cooper also told the crew that the landing gear on the plane was going to stay deployed in the takeoff and landing position, that the wing flaps would be lowered 15 degrees, the cabin would remain unpressurized during the duration of the flight, and the aircraft has to take off with the rear exit door open and its staircase still extended. Now, the co-pilot spoke up at this time and told Cooper that the aircraft could only fly a 1,000 miles, which meant that they would need to stop for a second refueling before entering Mexico. 
Cooper and the crew discussed some different options and then agreed on stopping in Reno, Nevada as the additional refueling stop. At this time, all of this information was being relayed to the Northwest Airline and authorities who were all agreeing with Cooper's demands, except for one thing. They told Cooper that it was unsafe for the plane to take off with its staircase deployed. However, Cooper told them that it was indeed safe, but that he wasn't going to argue with them, that he was going to take off with the staircase closed, but once they were airborne, that he would open it. Northwest Airlines agreed, but before Cooper was about to take off, an FAA official requested a face-to-face meeting with him aboard the aircraft, which Cooper was like, that, I gotta go. The refueling process was completed at approximately 7.40 p.m. The aircraft with Cooper and the crew took off. Now, just a little side note here, but once the plane was at 10,000 feet uh, after it took off, two F-106 fighter aircrafts were scrambled from McCord Air Force Base and followed behind the airplane. One F-106 was positioned above and the other one was positioned below. It was kind of like out of Cooper's view if he was to like to look out of the airplane window. So just keep that in the back of your mind when we go forward. All right. So shortly after takeoff, Cooper started getting his parachute ready. He then instructed the flight attendant to go into the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. Once the flight attendant reached the cockpit and closed the door, Cooper opened the staircase to be lowered. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement which indicated that Cooper jumped out of the plane. Two hours later, at 10.15 p.m., the captain landed the plane at Reno Airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet because they didn't know for sure if Cooper was still on board or not. After a quick search, they had learned that Cooper was no longer on the plane, but FBI agents did collect some evidence that was left behind which was Cooper's clip-on necktie and eight cigarette butts. Of course, the FBI immediately opened an extensive investigation, calling it NORJAC for Northwest Hijacking. The FBI spoke with many of the crew members and had a sketch artist create portraits of the hijacker that were then distributed to all news media outlets across the United States. They also spoke with the pilots of the F-106 jets that were following the aircraft and noted that the pilots didn't see anyone or anything jump out of the plane. For the first five years of this investigation, more than 800 suspects would come to the FBI's attention. After years of dead-end leads, investigators did receive a break in 1980 when a boy found an old torn-up package containing $5,800. It was buried along the Columbia River north of Portland. The serial numbers of the 5800 matched those of the ones given to Cooper. However, following an extensive search, nothing further was discovered. Despite an extensive manhunt and over a 45-year-long FBI investigation, in 2016, the FBI officially closed the case and D.B. Cooper's identity remains unknown. And that is the story of D.B. Cooper. Now, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the tip. It gets way deeper when you start looking at the strange facts and findings, which we're going to get into right now. So, Dan, do you want to start us off with that? I sure will. 
Now, the first strange fact and finding that we're going to get into is people claiming to be D.B. Cooper. So over the past 45 years, there have been a ton of individuals that have come forward claiming that they were D.B. Cooper or that they knew who D.B. Cooper was. We are going to go over some of the most notable claims by those individuals. So the first individual that we are going to discuss is Bryant Jack Cufflet. Now, Jack was an ex-convict and a government informant. In 1972, he told a former cellmate, James Brown, that he was actually D.B. Cooper and that he wanted to sell his story to Hollywood, but he needed James to act like his agent, kind of. Basically, he would have James go around to different media companies and try to sell his story for Jack. Of course, the FBI heard about this and said, you know... Jack kind of looks like the composite sketch of D.B. Cooper, and he was in Portland on the day of the hijacking, and he had sustained some leg injuries around the time of it as well. You know, we should, we should probably look into this. So a few weeks later, the FBI interviewed Jack and asked him, Hey man, are you really D.B. Cooper? If so, what happened after you jumped out of the plane? Jack stated that he landed near Mount Hood, injuring himself and losing the ransom money in the process. The FBI concluded that Jack was lying due to him being unable to provide certain details of the investigation that had not been made public. Jack ended up dying in 1975. But get this, even after he died, his former cellmate, James Brown, who was tasked by Jack to try and sell his story a few years back, was still trying to sell it, even after Jack was dead. Now, the news program, CBS 60 Minutes, actually did consider it, and that is the first individual that made the claim that he was D.B. Cooper. Now, I have a theory. Okay. It's Aaron. What is Aaron? Me? D.B. Cooper? Yep. No, D.B. Cooper, I'd be like 90. Look at the composite sketch and look at you. It looks nothing like me. You're, you're reptilian. Oh, my God. All right, so that was the first claim. Do you think it's shitty of James Brown to still try to sell his friend's story even after his friend died? Nah, dude. F*** that. I'd get all the money for having this be his cellmate. Yeah, okay, I'm going to make this claim now, okay? If I die, I don't care if you didn't even really know me in real life. If you're a listener, I don't, I don't give a shit. Milk my death for all that you can. Take as many days off work as you're able to. Say a close personal friend of yours has died. Milk my death as much as you can. I give everyone permission to. You're not a close friend. We're all family now. Yeah, we're all family. Milk it, baby. We all float down here. Oh, my God. <laughs> we'll float, too. All right, so let's talk about this next claim. This one comes from an individual named Robert Dayton. So Robert was a recreational pilot and University of Washington librarian who served in the U.S. Merchant Marine and then the Army during World War II. After he was discharged, he worked with explosives in the construction field and aspired to have a career in the professional airline industry. But he could never obtain a commercial pilot's license. Needless to say... Robert was pretty disappointed. So shortly after that, he claimed to be D.B. Cooper, that he was behind the entire hijacking to get back at the airline field and the FAA 
whose ruling had prevented him from becoming an airline pilot. Robert said that the ransom money was hidden in a cistern, which if you don't know what a cistern is, it's a big tank used for storing water. So the cistern was located in a suburban area south of Portland. Now the FBI heard about this and decided to interview him. Robert was under the impression that charges couldn't be brought upon him any longer due to how long it had been. However, the FBI told him that charges could still be filed in which Robert was like, "Ah, oh crap, psych, I lied, I made it all up. (laughs) Oh man. Now, just a little side note about this. The FBI has never commented publicly about Robert and he ended up dying in Oh my God, I don't know why I'm laughing. You're horrible. You're horrible. Dude, you were laughing all through Jonestown. So I don't want to hear it. Hey, I apologize (laughs) during that. I apologize when I was laughing during the Jonestown, which was our last week Patreon episode, if you didn't know. All right, straight face. And he ended up dying in 2002. That poor Robert. Misunderstood. Yeah. So let's go on to our third claim which comes from an individual named Robert Richard Lepsey. So Robert was a 33-year-old grocery store manager and a married father of four from Michigan who ended up disappearing in October of 1969. Now, it was just suddenly when he went missing. So his family was like, where the hell did dad go? And they ended up filing a missing persons report with the police. And then three days after his disappearance the police ended up finding his vehicle at a local airport and a man matching his description was reportedly seen boarding a flight to Mexico. So after the police had kind of like got that information, they concluded that Robert wasn't abducted or anything, that he left voluntarily, said, screw my family. And they were like, okay, and just closed the investigation. Damn. So fast forward two years later in 1971, The D.B. Cooper hijacking occurred, and it was all over the news. Robert's family was like, Whoa, that sketch of D.B. Cooper guy looks a lot like Robert who left our family two years ago. That bitch. So it was reported to the authorities who were unable to find Robert. However, in 2011, one of Robert's daughters submitted a DNA sample to the FBI, but the results were never made public, and the FBI hasn't made a public comment about him. It's just his family just getting back at him, you know? Right. They were just like, screw you, Robert. You left us. F*** you, Robert. This is like the perfect opportunity now for us to get back at you. Turning your ass in. Oh, just a side note. If one of us had a, a bounty out on our head, would any of us turn each other in? No, I wouldn't. We ride or die together. Oh, dude, no. I would turn your ass in and then bail you out with that money and tell you let's ride. Oh, nice. Depends on how much the bail and how much the bounty is, though. Oh, dude, if it's only $1,000 and we get twenty grand for you, Aaron. Oh, f*** yeah. Yeah, we're turning your ass. You're going to come to your front door, tasers in hand. You go, hey, guys. Zoop. Wait, we got him. I hate you. Show up at the door with lube and handcuffs. I mean, tasers and handcuffs. Oh, my God. Yeah, and then <laughs> we'd bail you out and be like, I hope you got your passport because you ain't getting it now. <laughs> we got to go. Well, I know who not to tell. If I'm wanted. You're always wanted by us, my love. Boom. Oh, my God. Now, those are just a few claims of individuals that were supposedly D.B. Cooper. And we know that there were a ton more. Yeah, there was a lot more. But we just, like we said, we just picked the top three that we liked. But, you know, we're going to move forward with the rest of the strange facts and findings. Yep. 
So our next strange fact and finding revolves around the actual name of D.B. Cooper. Now, the name D.B. Cooper is wrong. That's just a nickname that was given to him. So like we mentioned in the story, when Cooper went up to the airline's desk and asked for a ticket and the salesperson was like, hey, what's your name? He told him, he was like, hey, it's Dan Cooper. That is what his name was. So how did D.B. Cooper become the name that was used by pretty much everyone? Well, it is all because of a single news reporter. James Long, you son of a bitch, who was a reporter for the United Press International, was the first individual to report on the Northwest Airlines hijacking. He received the information of the hijacking from a source with Northwest Airlines and wrote down DB rather than Dan. After it was reported, multiple news stations picked it up and everyone went with DB. Now, James did an interview and said that the reason he wrote down DB was because either his source from Northwest gave him the wrong information or that the noisy phone connection made him misunderstand the name. Likely story, dude. Mm. Things never change, right? We still have shitty phone connection to this day. This is true. Even with 5G, come on. Yeah, even with 5G. (sighs) But man, I got that third arm growing, though. (laughs) All right, so let's go to our next strange fact and finding, which surprisingly is about a comic book. Now, I know what you're all thinking. Oh, a comic book. What does this have to do with Cooper? Now, just hang on, because this gets a little weird. So a few years before the hijacking occurred, there was a popular French comic book series named Dan Cooper. It was about a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot named Dan Cooper who takes part in adventures in outer space and in other real events of that era. In one of the series releases, which was published near the date of the hijacking, but before it, the cover of the comic shows Dan Cooper parachuting out of a plane. After the hijacking, the FBI learned about this comic and they came up with a theory that maybe the hijacker took his name from the comic book. This also led the FBI to think that the hijacker spent time overseas due to the comic book never being translated into English. So there's an entire theory around this that we will get into during the theory section. Yeah, and it's actually a really good theory. Uh, they're, well... We'll just save it for later. We'll go on to the next strange fact and finding. So our next strange fact and finding revolves around mysterious letters. So soon after the hijacking occurred, at least six letters were sent to several newspapers, all of them claiming to be from Cooper. Yeah, and we're going to go over all six letters right quick, and they're fairly short. So the first letter was received on November 29th, 1971 by the Reno Evening Gazette. Someone had used letters cut and pasted from a Sacramento newspaper and made this letter, which read, Attention! Thanks for the hospitality. Was in a rut. And that's all it said. (laughs) Wow, okay. (laughs) Hey, at least it said thank you. A second letter was received on November 30th, 1971 by the Vancouver province in British Columbia. The letter was handwritten and said, The composite drawing on page three, as suspected by the FBI, does not represent the truth. I enjoyed the Grey Cup game. Am leaving Vancouver. Thanks for the hospitality. Signed, D.B. Cooper. You think he's just Canadian? That's how nice he is? (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Hey, guys, thanks. Thank you so much. Hey there, buddy. 
have you a seat? Have y'all seen that TikToker? Hey there, buddy. He's got like a big mustache. And he's in the woods and he makes you like drinks and stuff and gives it to you like you're really there. <laughs> no, I haven't seen that. Hey there, buddy. If that's not what it's like when we go to the house, I'm going to be upset. And we better talk about making that fucking trip because you got me excited, Aaron. Yeah, we'll talk about that trip uh, after this episode. Ooh. So if y'all want to know what we're talking about, just listen to the rest of the episode. And at the end, we're going to talk about some things that we're going to have coming up. Okay. All right, so let's talk about this third letter. Go ahead, Hans. All right. A third letter was received on December 1st, 1971 by the Portland, Oregon newspaper. The person had used letters cut out and pasted from Playboy magazine. The letter said, Am alive and doing well in my hometown. The system that beats the system. He's just trolling them now. Right. At least he's like better than the... uh monster 21 faces letters yeah that's true all right so that same day that the portland oregon newspaper received that letter the reno evening gazette also received one this letter was also made from cutout letters and it said plan ahead for retirement income signed db cooper he doesn't really make his letters that long <laughs> Does he? <laughs> no, he doesn't. But he makes an exception for this fifth letter and sixth letter. All right. The fifth letter was received on December 11th, 1971 by the New York Times, Seattle Times, Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post. The letter said, Sirs, I knew from the start that I wouldn't be caught. I didn't rob Northwest Airlines because I thought it would be romantic heroic, or any of the other euphemisms that seem to attract to situations of high risk. I'm no modern-day Robin Hood. Unfortunately, I do only have 14 months to live. Jesus, what a bombshell to drop on him. <laughs> Dude, he must have watched The Ring. Two days. What? It was seven days, not 14 months. Oh. Ain't close, I guess. All right. 14 months. <laughs> 14 months. Dang, that's a lot of time. <laughs> that's what I would have said to her. <laughs> Damn, woman. What the hell are you doing all this time down in that hole? Anyways. All right. So the letter continues on with, My life has been one of hate, turmoil, hunger, and more hate. This seemed to be the fastest and most profitable way to gain a few fast grains of peace of mind. I don't blame people for hating me for what I've done, nor do I blame anybody for wanting me to be caught and punished, though this could never happen. Here are some, not all of the things, working against the authorities. I am not a boasting man. I left no fingerprints. I wore a toupee. I wore putty makeup. They could add or subtract from the composite a hundred times and not come up with an accurate description, and we both know it. I've come and gone several airline flights already and am not holed up in some obscure backwoods town. Neither am I a psychopathic killer. As a matter of fact, I've never even received a speeding ticket. Thank you for your attention. Kind of contradicting himself by saying I'm not a boasting man. Yeah, this is definitely boasting now. But maybe the person writing the letter was right. Maybe they, not, they aren't a boasting man. Maybe it's a woman. But we'll save that for theories. Ooh. So, Hans, tell us about uh, the sixth letter. A sixth letter was received on March 28, 1972, by the Portland, Oregon newspaper. The letter said, This letter is to let you know that I am not dead, but really alive 
and just back from the Bahamas. So your silly troopers up there can stop looking for me. This is just how dumb this government is. I like your articles about me, but you can stop them now. D.B. Cooper is not real. I had to do something with the experience Uncle taught me. So here I am, a very rich man. Uncle gave too much of it to the world's idiots and no work for me. I had to do it to relieve myself of frustration. I went out of the system and saw a way through good old Unc. Now you know, I am going around the world and they will never find me because I am smarter than the system's lackey cops and lame duck leaders. Now it's Uncle's turn to weep and pay one of its own some cash for a change. And please tell the lackey cops D.B. Cooper is not my real name. Signed, a rich man. That last letter was the best one. Right? Mm-hmm. Kind of makes me think he was with the military, but we'll save that theory for later. See, but this last one sounds like a totally different person now. Yeah. Yeah. So the FBI looked into all these six letters and sent them to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. for analysis, but nothing was found on them. They concluded that the letters were probably hoaxes. The identity of the author or authors of the letters remain a mystery to this day. Ain't that something? They can't even figure out who wrote the letters. It's almost like, I don't know, they had the same people that was working on Theodore Kaczynski's case, a.k.a. the Unabombers, working on this case as well. I don't know. Anyways, all right, so let's go on to the next strange fact and finding. Let's do it. Which revolves around an article that was published six months prior to the Cooper hijacking. Now, this article was published in the Daily Telegraph in London, England, on May 28, 1971. The article talks about a plot by an unknown person using the name Mr. Brown. This individual hoaxed the Qantas Airlines at Sydney International Airport of Australia into paying him £235,000 of ransom money after making a bomb threat. The aircraft involved was a Boeing 707 airliner. So this Mr. Brown was described as a white male, 6'1", 170 to 175 pounds, in his mid-40s, brown eyes, black hair, slender build, likes long walks on the beach, which is the exact same as D.B. Cooper. Now the FBI looked into this and added it to their D.B. Cooper file, but nothing ever came of it. Of course it didn't, dude. Probably got filed away like all the bullshit. It's because they didn't really look up that he likes long walks on the beach. Yeah. So this wasn't the only similar case to Cooper's. A lot of them happened after his. For example, 15 hijackings, all similar to Cooper's, were attempted in 1972. All of them were unsuccessful. Because all these hijackings were happening in 1973, the airline started having airport security do universal luggage searches to all individuals flying. Because of this, hijackings dropped dramatically. So if you're ever in the TSA line and you miss your flight or you're really upset because the line is so long, you can thank D.B. Cooper because he is responsible for getting all these other individuals to do 15 hijackings a year later. They implemented uh, universal luggage searches. So thanks a lot, D.B. You know... Before 9-11, I don't really remember the luggage searches. I don't really remember it either. I do remember right after 9-11. How strict it was? Yeah, I flew out of the same airport that one of the 
terrorist initially got on at. And uh, I was pulled to the side, me and my dad, for a search of like a full pat down. And they had to pat down my crotch. And I was like 11. Not cool, TSA. Not cool at all. Reminds you of Catholic day camp? Oh, my God. Waco siege days, you know? Yeah, Waco <laughs> siege days. All right. Um, so to continue kind of like talking about these hijackings, from 1973 to 1980, there were no further notable hijackings similar to Cooper's. That was until July 11th, 1980. Now, we do have a short story that we're going to talk about that has nothing to do with D.B. Cooper, but it is just too good not to include. And it's just going to be a couple minutes. But this story is freaking awesome. So start it off for us, Dan. So on July 11th, 1980, an individual named Glenn K. Tripp was on Northwest Airlines Flight 608. The plane was sitting on the Seattle-Tacoma Airport tarmac waiting for takeoff when Glenn stood up and took over the flight. The FBI was contacted, and Glenn stated that he had some demands. He said that he wanted $600,000, two parachutes, and his boss assassinated. <laughs> oh, God. After Glenn made his demands, he asked for an alcoholic beverage. The flight attendant who was preparing it for him slipped some Valium in it and gave it to him. <laughs> What's she doing with that shit? <laughs> yeah, I know. On a flight? Jeez. I gotta get me some rest. After an hour, Glenn started to have trouble staying awake, but kept in contact with the FBI, telling them that he wanted his demands to be made. The FBI kept dragging it out, knowing that he had been drugged. As time progressed, Glenn started to become more and more loopy. His demands went from $600,000 cash, parachutes, and his boss killed, to only three cheeseburgers a and a vehicle that he could escape in. Oh. <laughs> oh my god, dude, this sounds like a, like a death row last meal. Yeah. However, his demands were never met, and he was arrested. Yep. Now, <laughs> it gets better. So, only after serving a couple years in prison, he was released on probation. On July 21st, 1983, which was only three years later, he was still on probation. He decided to hijack the same exact Northwest flight again. Except this time, it was like in midair when he hijacked it. It wasn't sitting on the tarmac. And you know what he said? He said he demanded that the flight be flown to Afghanistan. <laughs> the pilots were like, Afghanistan? Uh, okay. Instead of flying to Afghanistan, they landed in Portland. And he was shot and killed by the FBI. Oh. So, bad ending. Not really funny. But, I mean, overall, crazy story. Had to be added, right? Three cheeseburgers in a vehicle. I mean, yeah. big, big demands. Big yeah. demands. Hold the pickle. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, let's talk about this last strange fact and finding. All right. Our last strange fact and finding revolves around the CIA. Now, there may be a link between Cooper and the CIA. So the CIA had a contractor named Southern Air Transport that they used as a shell company to do some of their covert operations during the late 1960s in 727 aircrafts. 
As part of this contract, the CIA wanted to see if these 727 aircrafts could be used for undercover airdrops in enemy lines by modifying their build in their rear stairs and pushing cargo out of it. The CIA wanted the 727 aircraft to retain the overall appearance of a regular passenger jet so they wouldn't be suspected of dropping this cargo. So these tests were conducted over Thailand in 1968, and these 727 aircrafts seemed to work great in dropping pallets of cargo, as well as individuals who wanted to jump out of the back of them and kind of parachute down. Now, this information of the CIA doing this with the 727s was not made public at the time and wouldn't be made public for a very long time. So airliners nor the pilots had a clue that these aircrafts were capable of doing something like this. But somehow, in 1971, D.B. Cooper knew this and lowered the stock rear stairs and jumped from the 727 aircraft that he had hijacked. He already knew it somehow, which kind of makes you think, did he have a connection with the CIA? Was he a part of their southern air transport operations that made him aware of the 727's capabilities of doing this? Hmm. And that leads us into theories. So who wants to go into our first theory we're going to talk about, which is cars theory? I will go into the first one. All right. Hit us with it, Dan. So our first theory comes from an individual named Larry Carr. Larry was a Seattle special agent for the FBI who worked on investigating the D.B. Cooper case for years. Larry has a theory that he thinks it is highly unlikely that Cooper survived the jump. But Cooper came from somewhere and from someone. Larry thinks that Cooper served in the Air Force and at some point was stationed in Europe, where he may have become interested in Dan Cooper comic books that Cooper worked as a cargo loader on planes, which gave him the knowledge and experience in the aviation industry, which was in its infancy in 1971. Because his job required him to throw cargo out of planes, Cooper would have worn an emergency parachute in case he fell out. This would have provided him with working knowledge of parachutes, but not necessarily the functional knowledge to survive the jump he made. Cooper may have come from the East Coast, but took an aviation job in Seattle when he got out of the military. It's possible that he lost his job during an economic downturn in the aviation industry in 1970-71. If he was a loner with little or no family, nobody would have missed him after he was gone. That's a good theory. Okay, yeah, I could see that one, actually. I could, too. Larry put some thought in this theory. You brought it today, Larry. All right, so... That's not the uh, only theory we have. So let's hear the other ones that we got before we side with Larry. So what's this next one? Well, our next theory is that Cooper was an ex-CIA agent who had gone rogue. That he was part of the CIA's operations in the 1960s, dropping cargo from 727s, and this is how he got his knowledge of it. That something or someone made him go rogue and decide to steal money and make a statement. The FBI and government were all aware of this and couldn't let the public know that a CIA agent had gone rogue and caused this. So instead, they covered it up and closed the case in 2016. I can see this. 
because what we mentioned earlier about the operations right with Southern Air Transport in Thailand and him having that knowledge, as well as let's say he was a CIA agent who went rogue, there would be no way that the CIA or the government would allow that information that one of their own trusted people had done this because that would bring mistrust upon that organization, right? The American people would not trust them in their decisions. So they say, cover it up, right? Yeah. Yep. This one I'm leaning towards. But we still have more, plenty more. So let's go on to the next theory, which revolves around not actually D.B. Cooper, but around the ransom money that was given to D.B. Cooper. So you guys remember earlier when we talked about that boy in 1980 who had found the $5,800 of ransom money buried along the Columbia River, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, that led people to believe that D.B. Cooper had died and his money was dropped into the river or something similar to that happened. However, there was something that was overlooked. August of 1974, six years before the money was found and three years after the hijacking occurred, this Columbia River was dredged. Now, Dredging is the removal of sediments and debris from the bottom of the lakes, rivers, and other various bodies of water. So the river was dredged in 1974, yet the money was found there in 1980. Now, if the money was there the entire time, wouldn't it have been discovered by the dredging operation? Well, there are some different theories to this. Some believe that the dredge machine had unknowingly picked up the money in a different part of the river and moved it to the location that it had been sitting at when it was discovered six years later. Some believe that the dredge operation had found almost all the money and kept it themselves and didn't tell anyone, but unknowingly left behind a portion of it. And some believe that D.B. Cooper is still alive and he buried a portion of it after the dredging. Now, There was a geology professor from Portland State University who wanted to get to the bottom of this. He needed to know what happened. So he studied the sediment from the location where the money was recovered. He determined the money could not have been deposited prior to the 1974 dredging operation, that there was clear delineation between the two sediment layers pre-1974 and post-1974. Now, if Cooper had buried the money the night he jumped, it would have been several feet below the 1974 dredged material and found in a different type of sediment than what it was discovered in. The professor stated that the most likely scenario was that the money landed upstream of the river and then in 1977, there was a big flood on the Washakal River, which caused a package of money to make its way from where it originally landed in 1971 to the Columbia. Over time, the bag and cords holding it together broke apart, releasing bundles of money. Because it had been in the bag, the money had not begun to disintegrate. Once out of the bag, the money began to slow rot, eventually making it into the Columbia sometime around late 1978 to early 1979. Once in the Columbia, the bundles began drifting downstream. It would have taken 14.7 hours for the bundles, if unobstructed, to make it to where the 5800 was discovered. Once on the shore, the money was covered over by sand, which acted as a natural preservative, leaving what was left intact until its discovery four to 12 months later. 
Ooh. Now, that was just a theory as to how the money got there, not who D.B. Cooper was, which is still a freaking mystery, but we do have a few more theories. I just have to say real quick, that professor really went super deep into that, didn't he? Yeah. He did. That's very interesting. I would have never thought of any of that, but I'm no professor, so. I wouldn't have either, but that's why he's a professor of, you know, the Portland State University in... We're hosts on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's get into this next theory, which is that D.B. Cooper never even existed. Oh, okay. This theory is that this entire story, everything, it was all made... Hold on, a plane's flying by. It's D.B. Cooper. (laughs) It is. He's jumping out and getting ready. So this whole thing is that D.B. Cooper and everything else was all made up by the pilots and flight attendants to get money. Now, it's true that there was no physical evidence of the crew conspiring together, but there also isn't any hard evidence that Cooper was there in the flesh. So the FBI tested everything they could for a link to the hijacker. D.B. Cooper somehow left no fingerprints, despite not wearing any gloves. Now, he did leave behind some cigarettes, some cigarette butts and a tie, and uh, the cigarette butts had some DNA on it, but the DNA on them has never been linked to anyone. Uh, Also, when the plane initially landed on the tarmac, Cooper ordered all the windows to be shut when landing and refused to talk to any of the agents on the ground. Uh, The captain and the flight attendant were the only ones talking to people. And if you remember, Cooper ordered one of the flight attendants to retrieve the cash for him and the parachutes. So no one on the ground saw him at all or even talked to him. Now, another thing is that when the flight was in the air, no one saw Cooper jump from the back of the plane. You remember he told Mm -hmm. the flight attendant supposedly, hey, you go in the cockpit with the pilot the co-pilot and the flight engineer and they never witnessed cooper jump out of the airplane even the military jets who were following discreetly behind the plane or not behind it one above one below they stated that they never saw anyone exit the plane and then another thing is the location of where the marked bills that were found in 1980 by that little boy were nowhere near where they should have landed when it was reported that D.B. Cooper had jumped. Now, this leads me to the theory, could it be that D.B. Cooper never even existed and that the crew made him up in order to get cash and then split it between one another only to learn that that cash was being traced by the FBI and they couldn't use it. So they either threw the cash away into the river or oceans so it couldn't be found, but some of it was found. I guess somebody's portion that they had thrown away. And that's just a theory. I could see it as an inside job. Yeah. Like you said, no one ever saw this guy. Yeah. Only the people inside. Yeah. And not only them, the crew members were the only ones. The people on the flight never mentioned that they saw D.B. Cooper. But then again, they weren't paying attention because they weren't aware that the flight was being hijacked at all. They were never made aware of that. That's true. All right. 
So what if this crew had worked those long legs in Thailand dropping stuff out and they knew what they could get? Ooh, yeah, this crew was actually part of the CIA. Yep, they just they just didn't go rogue. They're just like, Fuck it, we're going to get money from this company. Yeah, they're like, we're, we're used to making that big cash, dropping that stuff for the CIA. We're, we're making pennies now. Or what if the reason that nobody saw D.B. Cooper jump was because the jet that was right below the airplane sucked him into the intake, just can rip him to shreds. Yeah, that would have sucked. Hey, just a little note real quick. Do you think that 23andMe, you know, where you send your DNA in and they track your ancestry or whatever, do you think the FBI uses it? Like they tap into that database and run all that DNA to say, hey, is there any connections with serial killers or anything like that? Or missing people or murderers or people wanted? There's a way that that the FBI in like cold cases, they'll be like, well, we can't test his DNA because it doesn't exist here, but we're going to test it against something else like the criminal base or something. I think they do because they, they're able to like, be like, oh, well, you have a slight match to this DNA. I'm not saying you're the killer, but, you know, somebody in your family has this DNA that matches you. How do they get that if you're not even a criminal? I've seen some of that. 23 and me, man. I'm telling you. Biggest scam. They're selling all their DNA that they collect from you to the uh, FBI. Actually, they probably ain't even selling it. FBI's probably got their own, like, copy database from them, you know? Anyways. All right, so let's go into this last theory. Hit us with it, Hans. Tell us what it is. Now, this last theory is a bit crazy. Just an FYI, if you're a new listener, we do not discuss politics and we do not take sides. We are not Democrats. We aren't Republicans. We are the party of the people. Bigfoot 2024. Exactly. Suck it. Bigfoot motherfucker 2024. Let's go. Suck it. That's his slogan for this year. That's for, right. For his campaign. Suck it. All right. So this theory is that Joe Biden is D.B. Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> now. Are there any facts to back this up? Eh, not really. <laughs> but there are some strange connections. So back in 1971, Joe wanted to run for Senate, but he wasn't old enough to do so until 1972. And there was another issue. He had no money to campaign with. In 1972, Biden launched a long-shot challenge to Republican Senator Caleb Boggs, who was one of the most popular politicians in Delaware history. With a shoestring budget, the Biden campaign became a family operation. His sister, Valerie, who ran his county council campaign, was manager. His brother, James, was in charge of fundraising. At the end of the campaign, he raised over $300,000. Now, some speculate that he didn't raise that, that he was actually D.B. Cooper and stole it the year before to prepare his political run. Now, we do have a picture of the composite sketched and then age and in the bottom corners is Joe Biden young and Joe Biden old. We'll link it. Actually, you could just go to 
Google or you can go to DuckDuckGo and type in Joe Biden D.B. Cooper and it will pull up the picture for you. Like Hans said, it's the composite sketch of D.B. Cooper. And then next to that is age progression of the composite sketch of what D.B. Cooper would look like today. And then down in each corner is Joe Biden before 1974 and then Joe Biden in 2019, pictures of him. And he does look similar to D.B. Cooper. A bit. The only th- issue I have is in the picture in the bottom left, his hair is thinning when Joe Biden was younger, thinning pretty bad on the top. Yeah. And in the composite sketch, D.B. Cooper's got a head full of hair. But you remember in the letter, he did say he was wearing a toupee. Exactly. Well, there we go. We just solved it. D.B. Cooper is Joe Biden. Or Joe Biden is D.B. Cooper. Boom. Finished. Job done. That would make sense considering Biden can't remember shit. He must have landed on his head. <laughs> My God. Oh, right. God. <laughs> okay. So like we said, we don't get political. We don't take sides. We aren't Democrats. We aren't Republicans. We are the party of the people. We are Bigfoot 2024. Suck it. All right. Now let's get into our own personal thoughts and theories. Dan, if you had to lean towards any of these theories, or if you have a theory of your own, what are you siding with when it comes to D.B. Cooper? Was he non-existent? Was he a CIA agent? Was he just a person who stole money and jumped out of the plane and died? I'm going with the inside job and not involving with the CIA, but just the pilots and the flight attendants themselves. Hans, becoming a pilot, you have to learn about your plane, right? Oh, yeah. You have to know the ins and outs of your plane. It, like When you strap in and strap on, you become one with the airplane. The pilot knew how the plane operates, what it can do, opening up the back doors, not going to make it crash or nothing like that. Yeah, he might have, in the story, like said lied and all that shit, but they knew what they were doing. Only person to see D.B. Cooper, if, well, honestly, I don't even think D.B. Cooper existed. He was a made up character. It worked out fine. Because like, why would he even take like, I don't know, did he take the bomb with him? The briefcase with the bomb? Yeah, he took it. It was never recovered. That and the note, too. He had picked up the note and took it with him. See, why even take any of that? He left his tie and he left his um, cigarette butts. There's cigarettes, yeah. Yeah, so why would he do that? Why take those and leave those, you know? I think it was all just, what is it, uh, just a made-up scenario by the pilot and the flight attendants. They wanted the money. They probably were getting paid shit at the time, so... They wanted money, but then once they found out that the money was being traced, they got rid of it. Because, I mean, it, no, one, no one saw D.B. Cooper. You could lie about who you are. They could A pilot could have bought the ticket, or a flight attendant could have bought the ticket, used the name. Like you said, don't, no ID. Okay. What about you, Hans? What's your theory behind all this? Are you with Dan on this, or are you taking a different route? I'm going to have to say that it was Barry Seal. <laughs> <laughs> what? Barry Seal. He would have gotten his own plane. The CIA pilot? Let's see if that lines up. All right, why do you think it's Barry Seal? I'm just f***ing with you. I really don't. (laughs) I'm going to say that I believe that it was an inside job. Like Dan said, and like I said, these pilots, they know their airplane. That flight engineer would know where to hide the cash at to where nobody would find it. The fact that nobody was seen jumping out of the airplane It's mind-blowing. Granted, it did happen late at night, but when you've got 
two jet fighters that are pretty close by, and I'm assuming that it might have been a clear day, they were probably scanning and like, we we're going to catch them, you know, not like, oh, we're going to catch them, but we're going to watch them. But specifically wanting to fly at 115 miles an hour with basically almost full flaps down and landing gear. It's just to ensure that the airplane maintains its lift at that speed because it has a stall speed of uh, 100 miles an hour. With that being said, you know, all the pilots had to do was act like, you know, go back, pop open the door, lower the stairs down, get back in and say, all right, well, we made it to Reno, land back. Well, I don't know where he went. And, you know, that's time for them to all collaborate the same story to make sure everybody's is airtight, everybody has a good story. Okay, I like that. I'm going to have to go with that as well. I, I think they all collaborated together and D.B. Cooper never existed. But a part of me thinks that he was a part of the CIA because I just can't get around the fact that they were also doing years prior that whole undercover operations where they were dropping out of the back of the cargo out of the back of the 727s. And he somehow knew that for sure. I would say either one D.B. Cooper was for sure part of the CIA or number two, D.B. Cooper never existed. And the crew, somebody in there was connected to the CIA and knew about what the CIA was doing. And they made all this up to collect the money. That's my, one of two for me. That's what I can say that I'm going to go with. So I'm trying to remember exactly. How did he find out that the money was being traced? He never found out the money was being traced, I don't think. That just makes me believe it's still more of an inside job. <laughs> yeah, because it, it was never found until the boy found it in the river, like $5,800 worth. So, I don't know. If it was an inside job, they would n f know for sure it was being traced, and they wouldn't spend it. They would get rid of it. Yeah. Because honestly, if someone finds money, you know, they're going to spend a little bit of it, maybe. I ain't gonna lie. Yeah. But this does remind me of the movie uh, Without a Paddle. I've never seen that. It's about D.B. Cooper. Oh. Well, it's a comedy movie. They, a couple friends go out into the woods to search for D.B. Cooper's treasure. And they end up finding that he landed into like a fucking hole and died. Aaron, you got to watch that movie. It's a good movie. All right. I'll put it on my list of things to watch. Do you have anything else you want to add to today's episode before we head to the on the scene this week? Yeah. All right. Gun to your head. If you found $5,800, are you turning that shit in or are you spending it? Turning it in. It was unspendable. Did you see the condition it no, was no, no, in? No, no, I'm not talking about just like this money. I'm talking about if you found just randomly $5,800, would you spend it? Probably. Okay. I don't know. It depends on where I found it at. If I found it in like a parking lot of Walmart, I'd probably turn it in. But if it was just like buried in my backyard, I'd keep it. All right, listeners, you're going to hate me. I would take that shit from those little mole puppets that come out at 11 o'clock at night. I would take that. <laughs> and then I would get it put into a Western Union money order, no greater than $1,000. And then I would take that and cash it in my bank. So therefore, they would never know. If the money was tracked, I don't care. I'm that paranoid. I'd buy Bitcoin with it. What about silver? Yeah, silver as well. Both of them. Bitcoin and silver. All right. Well, thank you for joining today's episode. Uh, it was a good one. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And now we are going to move on to on the scene. So if you're unfamiliar with what our on the scene is, 
It is where each week a listener goes out onto the streets and interviews random individuals about current conspiracy happenings in the world. And you could do this if you wanted to. The person listening to this right now, yes, you, I'm talking about you. You can go out in the street with your phone and interview anybody you want and just shoot that audio file over to one of our email addresses, which can be found at theoriesofthethirdkind.com and click on the contact button and there's all of our email addresses. Just make sure the audio recording is less than two minutes long. Submit it and we will play it at the end of the show each week. Now, just keep in mind, there is a uh, queue of people waiting in line to get theirs played. So there is going to be a little bit of wait, but yours will be eventually played. So for this week, we have Rachel. She did an on-the-street interview with an individual named Frank. So we're going to play that right now. I am here with Frank, and I'm going to ask him a few questions. Frank, do you believe in aliens? Yes. Uh, what makes you say yes? I think there's been too many sightings, too many different locations for it all to be just coincidental. Okay, good answer, good answer. Now, Frank, do you believe in ghosts? Yes. What makes you say so? I believe there are a lot of things in this world that cannot be explained. If you just look at the whole concept of, of humanity, our bodies, our souls are made up of electrical components, atoms, energy. It don't die. They can be split. No, it does not. the forms, but they don't die. And I, I, I believe that some poor souls die in different unfinished business on their minds. Okay. Do you believe in Bigfoot? Well, I'm kind of bored with Bigfoot. Have you ever had any weird encounters in the forest or weird paranormal events happen? No. Do you believe in time travel? Absolutely. And if Absolutely. Okay, okay, so you do. Um, and, and why do you say that? Basically, time travel is numbers. Numbers and velocity. We haven't succeeded yet in being able to put it in the right order. But once somebody can get the right numbers times the right velocity, the physics will all fall into place. What do you really think is in Hillary Clinton's emails? First of all, Hillary Clinton is a horrible, abysmal person. She's basically reptilian. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if you went back into her lineage and everything and broke it all down. She descended from reptilian creatures. Uh, in her emails, God only knows. Okay. Well, thank you, Frank, for that wonderful interview. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. And that is the end of the interview. I really liked that one. I liked Frank. I did too. Even though he sounded like he might have been held captive by Rachel. A little bit, a little bit. But hey, you do what you got to do to get that interview. Exactly. You kidnap Frank, you put him in your basement, and you interview him. You just don't get caught. Yep. Yeah. No, but seriously, though, great interview by Rachel. She has a great voice, by the way. Yeah. Yes. So again, thank you for the interview this week, Rachel. Submit another one. It could be with Frank. It could be with anybody. You know, get it in. Go kidnap somebody else. Yeah, go kidnap somebody else. Release <laughs> Frank. Kidnap somebody else. But again, thank you. We love you. We're proud of you. Shout out to you, Frank. 
I hope you're doing great. All right. So now we're going to move on to shout outs. So I'll start off the shout outs this week for Instagram. Uh, I just got a few. But before I do the Instagram shout outs, I just want to thank everybody for purchasing merchandise. With your support, we're able to drop uh, elbows on the elite reptilian lizard people. Even though Aaron is the reptilian overlord now. I am with my chameleons. All right. So I want to shout out Gearhead Kevin, Mike Stotts, Megan Wolf, Brendan, uh, Brendan Schwab for shouting us out on his podcast. What's up, boy? Uh, Jason, Bex Warren, Blanca Lisa, Brandon, Charlie Scott, Luke Walton, Tyler Clifton, Misty Raquel, Kerman, Sniper Mom, Rachel, Quinn Risco, John Gotti, Lars, Brandon Lett, Steve, Katie Kuvercherve, Katie Kuvicker, Kuvicker, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, I'm sorry, Quentin Sean, Felipe Pons, and Jordan Ladsaw. I love you all. Thank you for the support. And keep sending that love, and we'll keep sending it right back. All right, Dan, who do you got for shout-outs this week on Facebook? All right, so for Facebook shout-outs, I only got a couple. We got Nick Peterson, Marcus Smatta, Cody Ruhlman, Daryl Rector, Edwin Kingsley, Jim Denning, Tim Campbell, James W., Erica Eldridge, Will Mick, Adam Roger, Mike Lay, uh, Vic Derringer. Keep it up, bro. Uh, Samantha Rochelle, Nate Glenn, Austin Blevins, uh, Kelly Sorensen, Nick Ray, and Brittany S. Then uh, from Discord, Alyssa Davis 87, Jazzy, Harry. Harry, I'm still waiting on the patch. Has it come in yet? Red Dadpool, High C, his wife. They're funny. Love them. Then uh, shout out to Aaron Gray. Your uh, boyfriend told me that you've been wanting a shout out. You just didn't know how to ask. So shout out to you. Hello. And that's all I have. Nice. All right, Hans, who do you got for shout outs? Oh, it's a short list, but um, here we go. Um, Zumba Zombie from Discord, Kaiser Soje. You already know, dude. Thanks for the much love. Stevie. Um, we're going to hop over here. We're going to do one for uh, a Miss Jamie. Uh, Tate Dreskel. Um, Bradley Smith. Sarah Godwin. Agnes. And a special shout out from Spencer Roberts. He wanted me to say on this podcast that he loves, loves, loves his wife. And he wants her to know that because she listens to this as well. And uh, last shout out goes to uh, my boy Stevie Ray, harshest critic, but uh, he's always there. Love you, Stevie Ray. Stevie Ray. All right. Well, that's the end of the shout outs. Um, and before we wrap things up, we did want to talk about some upcoming stuff we got going on. Uh, I know Halloween is around the corner, so we're going to be doing some spooky, spooky episodes. So again, if you have any ghost stories that you would like to submit, please submit them to us. Uh, we would prefer that you recorded them and that they were less than two minutes long, please. And if you submit an email, read it out to yourself and time yourself. And please make it less than three minutes of being read so we aren't sent like a 13-page novel. We can't read it. I'm sorry. I mean, I can read fast, but not that Yeah, fast. it allows 
us to get in more stories during that time. So just a little heads up. Uh, also, we are doing a, I don't even want to say where we're going. Basically, to a killer's house and going to be staying in it. And it's a very famous killer. And uh, we're going to be bringing a Ouija board. So wish us luck. We're going to be recording there too. It's going to be fun. You guys ready for that? So am I going to be told what we're doing? Because now I have no idea what's going on. Did you say anything about it? Yeah, we talked about it in the text. Were you not paying attention? No. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, surprise, you're flying up here, and we're going to a special house, and we're all spending the night in it and playing with a Ouija board. We're going to leave you in the house by yourself, Danielson, because you didn't listen to us. <laughs> all right. Well, do you have anything else you want to say or add before the end of today's episode, before we roll it out? Of course, the inspirational quote for the day, listeners. The cream always rises to the top. Just remember that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. And again, thank you for all your support. You are amazing. So with that being said, Dan and Hans, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you're not alone. <laughs>